And now I will introduce you to my character, who is a black woman who is also a literal savage with a bone in her nose. And you're like, ah! Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I'm really happy to be joined by Kay Tempest Bradford. Tempest, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yay. Uh, Tempest, who are you? Uh, I am a strange person in a strange land. <laughs> I- Portland is kind of weird. Portland is a is a strange land, and I'm actually going to. I only have another week and a half here Aww. in Portland. Um, I am a writer. Uh, I write mainly science fiction and fantasy. When I write fiction, and when I write nonfiction, I write a com- a wild combination of things. Like I'm a technology journalist. I review gadgets. I'm also a media critic, and I write about um, television and what is great about it, or what is really super horrible about it. <laughs> and I'm a blogger. And I've been a blogger for quite a long time. I'm one of those people on social media. They're harsh and your squee about everything that you love. Um, and basically just like a, a creator slash fan person slash pixels on a computer screen. I know you use pixels. Um, yeah. So you and I met um, as a direct result of... Um, Alex Knight saying, I want to do a Jim and the Holograms podcast. And I was like, I'll do a Jim and the Holograms podcast with you. And he was like, who else could do it? And people on Twitter were like, Tempest Bradford. And we were like, hey, you want to do it? And you were like, yeah. Um, that was the worst storytelling ever. I apologize to the <laughs> listeners. But that is that essentially what happened. Is it was like, you know, Alex was like, I want to do this. I said, OK. He said, we need another person. We were like, hey, Internet. And Internet was like, Tempest. Yes. And... <laughs> And it's because I have spent oh so many years on the internet and in conventions, like ranting about Gem and the Holograms and talking about my love for it and, and saying to people like, how can you feel this way about this character? Because this is the real way to feel. And so I think that it was one of those magical internet things where like 20 people were like, did you see that they're looking for somebody for this podcast? <laughs> that Jen, you know this podcast? I was like, what, what, what's happening? And they're like, come on, let's do it. I'm like, okay. So... <laughs> And it's absolutely delightful. Sometimes it's the highlight of my week is yeah. uh, I, I know the second and I've said this to you before, the second you say listen, because <laughs> you have a very specific tone of voice. And I know what is going to follow is going to be full of truth and comedy. And uh, and I greatly enjoy that. But why what is it about Jim and the holograms that you like so much because we haven't really had this conversation about like how did you become such a fan or why do you think you're such a fan and you know into adulthood and and analytical about it because you really are you're like yeah. <laughs> you, you drop a lot of things where I'm like I'll say something and you're like no you're wrong and I'm like yeah actually you're right after <laughs> you explain <laughs> it so so how did this all come to be I think it's just because uh, when I was a little kid and Gemma the Hoggars first came on, it it had like this this really deep appeal to me, probably because it involved music, because I've always loved music. I've always loved to sing. Uh, I would sing along. I would learn all the songs. And I feel like it was just this really sort of like magical moment in my childhood where all the things that I was sort of really into, like 
ladies having a band and singing music and having a fabulous, you know, giant computer that could generate like magical holograms and they're going on adventures and they're doing all the things. And so I loved all that about it. But I think mainly it was just because there was always music involved because there's a ton of uh, TV shows that I really liked when I was a kid. I really, you know, cartoons like She-Ra um, or the real Ghostbusters or whatever it was that I don't sit around thinking about as much as I sat around thinking about Jim in the last 30 years. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it, I think really what it came down to was the music. And because even after Jim went off of television and I was very sad, so I'd be like, Oh, Jim used to be on every day. And now it's on like maybe once a week and now it's only every now and then, but I had meticulously recorded all of this music off of the television. Like I had figured out how to hook up my television to my little cassette stereo thing and then how to like, you know, do the recording of things. And and so I had all the songs. And so I would like just listen to them over and over, like even into, I think, high school on the cassette tapes that I had until I moved to CDs. And then I was like, I don't know how to transfer this cassette business to a CD. So I guess I'll just have to give it up. Um, And, but I just, I never lost those songs. When I first when the DVDs came out, the, that first set of DVDs of Gemini Holograms, mm-hmm. and we sat around watching it, I remember every lyric to every song. <laughs> and I didn't even know those things were still in my head, but they, they were totally in my head. They had been in my head since I was like seven years old. The, the background, it, almost literally the background to your childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I loved just listening to music and, and daydreaming to music all the time. And I, I feel like more than any other type of media, music was always like just this thing in my life where I, I could just like slip into it and go into a different state and be in a different place. Because like when you're reading, I get that too. But somebody might interrupt you when you're reading and you're like, oh, these people, they're terrible. Uh-huh. Listen to music, you have headphones, but people are not interrupting you. And I would just sit in my room and just jam to my music all the time. It became a problem because people would knock or they would call for me and I wouldn't hear them because I was jamming to my music and then they would get mad because they're like, you didn't come when we called you. I was like, that's because I didn't want to hear what you had to say. (laughs) The finest form of escapism. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, are you still intensely into music now, like modern music or because I know you still listen to the Jim and the Hologram songs quite a bit. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 <laughs> when Google Music came out, one of the things that I was super excited about was that I could upload all of the music that I had and just listen to it wherever. And so I was like, people was saying, oh, well, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, oh that Gem in the Hologram song. And I pull it up on my phone. I'm like, it's in my Google Music. <laughs> and I, yeah, music, I, I even studied music. When I first went off to college, uh, I went as a music major. I was going to to sing classical voice, but but there were things that were involved in the community of classical voice that I did not want to make myself involved in. So I moved mm-hmm. on to other things. And I do enjoy, there's some modern music that I enjoy. I, I'm more, I've become one of those people who's like, music was only good when I was 15 years old and I would just listen to these songs that I listened to when I was 15 obsessively over and over again. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, because there's, I feel like there, each person has a, a place in their heart where the music of that time synced up with like the, the themness of that time. And that music is very special to them. And probably often it's when you're sort of in your teens, early adulthood. So 90s music still like has this place. Like I can listen to a song from the 90s and be like, yes, 
that is me. That was this part of my heart at that time. And there, there isn't a lot of music that's being made right now uh, in terms of popular music that speaks to me in that way. But I feel like also popular music is for people who are in their like teens and early 20s. Like that's, a, that's who they're aiming at. That's who a lot of it is made by. So there's nothing particularly wrong with that not speaking, you know, to any part of my heart because it's just, you know, it's whatever. But then uh, a lot of the music that I listen to now is less on the sort of like pop music, rap, hip hop stuff that I listened to when I was younger and um, more about just like really intricate, interesting music. I love Zoe Keating. Zoe Keating is a cellist and mm-hmm. um, a lot of people, including myself, discovered her through listening to uh, Radio Lab, which is a podcast out of WMYC on the NPR station in New York. And they did this episode called Quantum Cellist, where they just featured her and her music and how um, she uses a computer and a MIDI system to um, make all these loops in the music. So she plays a strain and it gets recorded and she plays another strain that gets recorded. And then the strain that she recorded gets you know, played back over and over. And she just builds these layers on layers and layers of music. And I just really love her stuff. And luckily, when I first discovered her, um, it was right before her last album came out. And so I had, you know, all the stuff that she had done before that, plus this great new album. It's called Into the Trees. And it's just really beautiful. And I love just everything about what she does. And I and I also love like listening to the earlier EPs and then listening to Into the Trees and just seeing how like she evolved. Like it was very clear that she was becoming more and more complex with the things that she was trying to do, the things that she could do. And listening to her live is just such an amazing experience because you're watching her build this music in front of you. Like you can, you know, anybody can do anything in a studio. You can record like 17 million tracks and like flow them all together. But like she could do it live and watching her do it live is amazing. So I love listening to, um, to Zoe Keating and I love listening to like the artists that are sort of connected to her, like either she's collaborated with or that sometimes come up in those, oh, if you like this, you'll like this. And and I'd love listening to that. Really into cello music now uh, because of her. And then I also recently got into Lindsay Sterling. I love just her. Because, yeah, I just find her exuberance to be really amazing. And so I love just, you know, listening to her tracks. And, and I know that she is also like it's very much grown as an artist like when she first started out just trying to figure out how to incorporate like the dance stuff with like actually playing um but but i think that she has put together and and just created some really really great tracks and i'm not a real big fan of her videos i feel like there's a conversation to be had about pandering Um, (laughs) but but her music i think is really great I also, um, it's interesting because these are some of the artists that I really like. I love the piano guys. Um, yeah, and, they're too. and yeah, and seeing them live because they do, you know, not to the level that, that Zoe Keating does, but, um, they actually show like, here's the cello and here's the loop and we can lay down this loop. Um, and there's a, there's a video that shows it actually pretty well, um, of it's a combination of like, Oh, come all you faithful. And, um, marching ants by dave matthews band or something oh, wow. <laughs> and it's really neat it's so neat and um also pentatonics um how they take uh popular music and make it acapella and like arrange and layer different elements and they do mixes and it's oh, that wow. that same stuff that you're talking about like that complexity of sound and of just like marveling that 
that humanity can do that. You know, this is exactly. this is a thing that we are capable of doing. It's kind of awe-inspiring to me. It is. And I also feel like if I had known that these kinds of things were possible back when I was studying music, I probably would have stayed with it more because I went to a very traditional music program. And I remember the first time that I, I realized that I probably wasn't going to make it as a music student, um, not because of any talent I had or didn't have or whatever, but I was, I was talking with my advisor and I was saying to her that I didn't want to, one of the things that we had to do as a requirement is we had to be in our choir. And I was like, I don't really want to do the choir because I had gone to a performing arts high school. Well, actually it was performing arts sixth through um, 12th grade. So I had gone there for middle school and high school and we had been doing sort of college level choral stuff since I was 13. And then I get to choir in college and we're doing the same things. I'm like, oh, I'm so bored. Mm. And I said, well, why can't I join one of the other sort of choirs that are around? Like, oh, um, like we had a jazz group that was, uh, you know, something that you could join in our school. Like there were all these like sort of cool little things that were going on. Oddly enough, not in our department, in other departments. But I was like, why can't I join one of those as my core requirement? And my advisor said, well, it's because you're going to have to know this repertoire, the choral repertoire, because when you become a teacher, you will have to, you know, lead choirs and teach this. And, and I'm like, my mind made that record scratch sound like, Bleh. I was like, excuse me, I'm not in the music education program. I'm in the performance program. But her conception was that, you know, this is how your career goes. You have to go off and be a teacher and lead a choir. And then maybe you could go to the opera. But, and I was like, Bleh. no, 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 that is not what I'm here for. Uh, and because that was the idea of what a career had to be like that was set out for me, I was like, well, I don't want that. So I guess I'm just not going to be, I'm not going to study music anymore at a formal level like this. Had I known right. <laughs> that there were all these cool things that people were doing or would do in 10 years, 15 years, whatever, I would have, I would have not deviated from that path as much as I had. Cause also I played the clarinet. And I was super discouraged from playing clarinet in college as well. So like you have to focus on your voice. I'm like, oh, great. But I was like, man, if I'd stayed with the clarinet, I could have joined Emperor Norton's Stationary Marching Band. They're like a steampunk marching band that plays like really cool stuff. I was like, I could have been in that band. I could I could be one of the people in the background of a postmodern jukebox video if I had stuck <laughs> with the clarinet. But no, I was told that I had to do these other things. So, so kids out there, don't listen to your college advisors because sometimes they're wrong. In a lot of ways, I think uh, formal education is a major detriment to creativity. We're not taught how to be creative. We're taught how to be cogs. Yeah. Um, and if you don't, if you don't fit, if your cog is slightly warped from what the system wants it to be, um, it can be really, really hard. Yes. And this is why I often, I, parents get really upset with me when I do this, but I'm like, hey, kids, don't necessarily run off to college yeah. right after high school, because I feel like a lot of my college education, a lot of the years I spent in college, I spent trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. But my parents were paying something on, well, 
I had loans and whatnot. But like right. my college tuition was something on the order of $30,000 a year. That's $30,000 a year to figure yourself out. That's a lot of money. Yeah. If I had been more sure of myself uh, or, you know, had better advice about like what was possible for me or the different paths that I could have taken before I went off to college at $30,000 a year, I, I probably would feel less bitter about the time that I spent in at NYU figuring things out if I had just like taken maybe a year. But like, that's really super not encouraged uh, in our culture. It's like, you know, high school, then you get your butt right off to college yeah. and then probably your butt right off to grad school. But I really feel like it's it's better for people to be, you know, you don't have to decide what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life, but just like figure out what it is that you love and and who you are before then you commit to a, you know, many thousands of dollars education in a thing. Yep. Yep. I completely agree. You know, and I'm in my, um, I'm like just over a month away from being 33 and I'm like, I still don't know what I want to be. I like, I'm still figuring this out yet. I have this, you know, I, I have a degree and I have a hefty student loan bill because I did that thing where I was like, oh, I'm going to be a computer science major. And then I got halfway through and I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do this. So now I have to go take more prerequisites. And like I didn't graduate from from college until I was 24. And um, that's a lot of extra semesters to be doing on student loans. And yes. yeah, no, don't do that. Don't be like me, kids. <laughs> Yeah, I, I am. I'm glad that at least where I ended up at NYU, which was um, a school within NYU called the Gallatin School for Individualized Study, which was more about you know that exploration and being able to do things that cut across different disciplines and whatnot. And so I'm I'm glad I did that because that's basically when I my advisor said that to me, and then I was like, ah, oh, no, and then I ran away. I ran away to Gallatin, um, which is a good place to end up. I just wish that there were more schools like Gallatin around. Um, from what I understand, there are there are some places where you can go and you can, like you could build your own major. You can have a major that's basically interdisciplinary work. But I feel like it's uh, there. It's a minority. It's a vast minority of what is out, available out there for people going to college. So what did you, what major did you end up building? So in, in, at Gallatin, they didn't really call it building your own major. Like essentially, my, my degree literally says Bachelor of Arts in Individualized Study. Okay. <laughs> that is what it says. And it is amazing. So we had concentrations and it, and you didn't even really have to define your concentration. What happened uh, as once you got to the end of your uh, Gallatin undergraduate education in order to graduate, you had to do a colloquium. Um, and before you could do your colloquium, you had to write this letter that was a kind of letter. You had to write an, an essay, essentially, like a, a sort of like mini thesis that um, talked about all the books that you read, you know, during your different studies, you had to list um, all these books and how your books and the classes you took sort of synchronized into, you know, a grand idea of your education. And then once you had written that, you went to the colloquium 
and the colloquium was uh, your advisor and two other Gallatin professors, and you just sat down, you had a conversation with them about the thing that you wrote about in your essay and about the books that you put on your book list and whatnot. And when I did that, it was, I had actually, I wasn't sure what the the grand idea of my education had been because I was like, well, sorry, I was a music major. And then I came to Gallatin, I did some performance stuff and I did this writing thing and whatever. Um, but I, so I had to like sort of spend a lot of time like walking around, like figuring out like what it was that even I, everything meant. And when I finally hit on the idea, I was like, whoa, this is kind of insane, but it totally works. And I basically, I talked about the fact that, you know, we have in our culture, we no longer appreciate the value of the, um, what in some cultures they call a shaman and other cultures, um, maybe it's called like a medicine person, mm. the wise woman, uh, the person who is sort of the uh, the person in the community whose job it is to stand between the the world of the unconscious or the subconscious dream, unreal, etc., and the world where you know that's the concrete and material and to pull messages from one and bring them to the other that's relevant to the people because not everybody can walk those two roads um not everybody can delve deep into their subconscious to get answers to life the universe and everything and you know because it's it's dangerous work and what i realize is is that artists um artists who are like really great artists are actually the shamans of our modern Western era, because artists do that work. They go deep into themselves. They go deep into the subconscious. They pull things out and they present them in such a way that it helps people to understand themselves. It helps people to understand the world, life, universe, and everything. And I realized that, you know, when I was young, I had like all these ambitions. I was like, I'm going to be an actress. And so I took some acting classes, but I wasn't really that good at it, except for comedy. I was really good at comedy because I use comedy as like a shield against everything. And so it was really easy for me to do comedy, but like real acting or well, comedy is real acting, but like dramatic acting, I couldn't do. Like I just wasn't good at it. Um, I was good at singing, but I was really horrible at dealing with like the crap that went on um, in my you know department. I really love performing and and all that came to, and I really love writing and all that came together. And I realized that the reason why I wasn't a very good actress is because I wasn't able to access the same kind of like going deep into the subconscious or the collective unconscious or whatever you want to call it and pulling things out and, and making them be meaningful in the real world when I was an actress. But when I did it as a writer, I felt like I could do that. When I did it as a singer, I felt like I could do that. And so that is really what my Gallatin education was about, was, was learning about that, that whole concept of, you know, what is mythology for him? What are the shamans and medicine people and wise women for in our culture and et cetera, et cetera. And then realizing like, that's why I'm a writer. This is why I'm a writer first and a singer secondarily and an actress, not at all, because <laughs> I was put on this earth to, to do the writing thing. And so that's what, and I, and I talked about all these different examples of like artists expressing this kind of thing. I used Neil Gaiman's Sandman series 
uh, in on my list of books. And my advisor was very confused. She was like, what is this? Is this comics? This is for children. I'm like, oh, lady, stop it. <laughs> you have to stop saying things like that. But, but you know, we had this, I had this whole like, conversation about how I disagreed with the idea that there was a collective unconscious as, as Jung posited, but that there was a collective consciousness. And I feel like in Sandman, the fact that, you know, Morpheus exists in, in the world of dream, like that's his realm. Dream is the collective consciousness because it is where everybody deposits everything that is in their head when they're asleep. Like it all gets deposited in dream, but dream is a living thing. Like it's not just a place. It is, it is living and breathing it is a reflection of Morpheus, but it is separate from him, but it is tied to him. That's sort of the whole point of the Sandman series, how like dream and Morpheus are two things, but they're the same thing. And like one can't exist without the other. And when everything gets torn apart, like it doesn't really go away, but it comes back in a different form. And Morpheus is a different person. Like it's all this stuff. It's so cool. And I was like, that's what it is. Like that's what, what artists do is so they go into the land of dream and they avoid Morpheus because he's a morose guy. Right. Nobody wants to talk to that dude. And they like pluck the flowers from Hitler's green and they come back and they're like, art. Yeah, I'm, I'm absorbing that because that's uh, that's really what it is, right? It, it allows us to step back and examine ourselves without being close to it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really hard to examine your own life, but if you can look at it. Um, and look at the world through a different lens that gives you a little bit of distance. That's interesting. I haven't actually read Sandman because, oh. um, and it's on my list, and um, and I'm thinking about buying like the the collection um, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's been on my wish list forever. I want it, um, but it, it's far down on my wish list at this point because I am doing the K Tempest Bradford um book challenge will you talk about that a little bit <laughs> yeah I will um but yeah I don't know yeah you have to wait till that's over until you to read some Neil Gaiman but yeah. when you do you'll be like oh this is very interesting I love Neil um, Gaiman so it's yeah. just <sighs> oh Sandman but um <laughs> so the the Tempest challenge it started out I wrote this blog post in February and I was just like, hmm, what should I write about this weekend? I don't know. And then I came up with this idea um, about how I, I said, you know, you, I, I challenge you to stop reading um, white, straight, cisgendered male authors for one year. And the reason why I wrote that post, it was like a combination of a bunch of things. Uh, I just read somebody else's uh, article that they put on The Guardian talking about how they had decided to take a year and not read any white authors. Um, They only read authors of color. And they were inspired by a woman who had taken a year and not read any male authors, only read women. And they talked about how, you know, just by shifting the center of their reading and shifting, like, you know, if you're reading books by women that are written for women, then, like, there's a shift in this gaze, there's a shift in this worldview. And you start to realize how much your worldview is like completely bombarded by and occluded by um, these very dominant voices, you know, whether they be male voices, whether they be white voices in the Western world, et cetera. And so they just talked about um, the, the revelations that they had as they were doing this year of like not reading um, you know, these, these two particular groups. And then I talked about how in 2012, 
I was, I needed to read more short fiction. So I write short fiction and I was like, I need to read more short fiction because that is the way that you grow as a writer and you also understand what the magazines want and this, that, and the other. So I was like, I have to read more short fiction. But I would just have like these moments of anxiety every time I went to go read more short fiction because there's there's a lot of terrible fiction that's published. Mm-hmm. And even more than that, it, not even just terrible fiction, but really offensive stuff. And I would be like, I just don't want to be reading along and then come across somebody who's like, and now I will introduce you to my character who is a black woman who is also a literal savage with a bone in her nose. And like, ah! So I just became really anxious whenever I like picked up, you know, a copy of Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction or something along those lines. Then I said, well, what if I did this? What if I just didn't read any men? Like maybe that will help to eliminate some of this offensiveness because it's not that only men are offensive. However, very often women are not putting horrible stereotypes and tropes of women in their writing. Right. You know, it's not 100% all the time, but like most of the time when you're reading women, you're, you're less likely to encounter those things. And so I was like, okay. So then I went through all the different magazines I was reading. I was like, that's a woman, that's a woman, that's a woman. And then I forget who it was, but I came across a story. I was like, oh, wait, let me read that story. It was probably a Ken Liu story. I said, well, Ken Liu's a man. And I was like, but Ken Liu is a man of color. And now I was like, okay, so I can do this. So if I include men, then they have to be men of color or they have to be men who are not cisgender men or um, not straight men. And so that's basically what I did was like, I just eliminated straight white men from my reading for that year as I went through. And I was like, and then I started on my blog being like, these are the, um, all this, the stories that I read this month that I really loved. Boom, boom, boom. And I would sometimes say why I love them. And sometimes I would be like, here's just a list. Cause I can't, I don't have the spoons to tell you exactly why, but go read the stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I really began to enjoy reading short stories again. Like I look forward to, you know, going through every month and being like, okay, I've read all the stories that fit my criteria in the magazines that I usually read. And the month is not over yet. Let me go discover some other magazines that I don't really know about. Um, sfsignal.com is a roundup, but you know, usually about every week, sometimes a little bit more of um, free fiction and then include short fiction. And so I would just go to SF Signal and look for that post and be like, oh, here's some, here's a list of some stuff that I haven't read yet. And I would do that. And I just really got into reading short, short fiction again that year. I started to understand what it was that editors wanted because I, you know, spent, you know, a really long time reading through all these different stories, I'm like, okay, I think I have a grasp on what kind of story Clark's World wants, what kind of story Electric Philosophy wants. Um, And I discovered a lot of really amazing authors during that time. So I was really glad I did it. So all of that was in my head. And I have a a regular column on io9, where I am doing sort of the same thing. I, every week, I'm like, these are stories that I read this week that I really love. You should go read them too. And somebody in my io9 comments left this long comment where they were like you call this the best stories of you know blah 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 week but i have noticed that all of these stories are by women oh no right like mm. and he said and when you do include men i have noticed they're usually like some sort of like either they're a, a writer of color 
or maybe they're gay or something. And I just want to know why you're excluding white men. Like, why don't you just say that this is the best of these stories by women or people of color or, or gay people and not white men? And I was like, ah, <laughs> oh, the laughter. Um, because you know, in my I on comment column, I actually, I'm no longer doing the thing I did in 2012 where I am not reading straight white men mm-hmm. um, and cis men. But I don't, like basically when I start reading stories, I treat it a lot like I'm reading slush. And so if you don't grab me in the first couple of paragraphs, I'm not reading your whole story. And it just so happens that most of the stories that, that engage me, uh, that interest me, that I read all the way through are by women and people of color and LGBT people and trans people. That's, you know, I think that perhaps that year of reading stuff shaped my taste, but you know, once again, I come across a lot of stories that are just like, meh, or they include some offensive stuff. And I'm like, Nope, not here for that. And I just don't read all the way through the stories. Now, that's not to say that there aren't white, cis, you know, straight guys who have written some really great stuff. I featured them in the column, but they don't get featured a ton because it's like my taste that is in this column. So that's just how it is. But this guy was like, it's a conspiracy. So all that came together in my head. And I was like, I know I'll issue a reading challenge because I need to write something for uh, Exo Jane this weekend. And this would be my reading challenge for that issue. And so I was actually hanging out with my editor. Um, I wrote the whole thing. And I was like, let's just put aside these, these particular writers for just this one year and just see what happens. See what you, you know, what kind of fiction comes out of that. What new authors you find. You know, how it changes the way that you view not only the books that you read, but just kind of like your view of culture, because, you know, all these things are influenced by culture. And I said, you know, because quite honestly, the straight white cisgender men, they're okay. They're doing just fine. They, you know, people, they're getting reviewed by everybody. Cause that was another thing that came up recently that major review outlets review way more men than women and way more white people than people of color. It's just a thing that happens. I was like, they're going to be fine. Why don't you just leave them on the shelf for a bit and read some other stuff and, and see how that changes you? So I wrote that. Um, I, I can't remember what my title was. Um, I know it had like the not reading the straight white men thing in there. But my editor, I look, she looked at it and she was like, make the title more direct. And so it ended up being, I challenge you to stop. Da, 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 da. This became part of the reason why the entire internet exploded. It really did. It hit the internet. Um, But it was also, so some people pointed out to me, it's also because um, in, when, when you put it up on Facebook, the title would say, I challenge you to stop reading straight white cisgender men. And then that was it. <laughs> like the, for one year would often get cut off on Facebook. Oh no. <laughs> and so people, and of course, as has been proven, because I, I think NPR did this experiment where they put um, a headline and 
um, some text in that was like super provocative and anger making. But then if you actually click through to the article, it was like, this is just a test to see how many people only read the headline and the little. Yes. But the article is not really about that. And so. Yeah, of course they proved that because like people were all over the internet like ah NPR how could they ah, blah, blah. and it was like haha we tricked you um but it didn't teach anybody to like actually click <laughs> through things because nope. a lot of people just didn't and so like all across Facebook people's people's entire friendships were ruined over their discussion of the, the headline <laughs> on Facebook of my article and but the discussion on the article is also like very very heated um it's just and and at first it was mostly just people who are who were on Exojane, which is where it got published. And I had a kind of contentious relationship with the the commenters on Exojane, um, mostly because I'm like, eh, eh, I'm not gonna coddle you. And right. so I didn't coddle. Um, but then other people started showing up and I think by the by the time I, I tapped out, we were over a thousand comments and there were so many hits on this article and it, like the article became so popular. I think on Monday or Tuesday, they promoted it to the front page and they had it at the top, but then whoever made the decision to like put it at the top amongst the, like, you know, read this, like it, instead of it being like, go on a book diet or something like that, they were like book boycott. And I was, I had been no. saying, oh, man, uh. it's not a boycott. I'm not telling you to boycott anybody, but they're like, book boycott. I'm like, Oh God, editors. Why? So, <laughs> and I have no idea like who even made that decision. Cause like, I only deal with, dealt with my direct editor. Who's the weekend editor at the time. I didn't actually deal with anybody further up the chain, mm-hmm. but I complained. I was like, please tell them not to do that. Please make it go away. And I think like the last time I looked at XO Jane, and it's been months now because it was back in February. My post is still there as one of the most commented on posts. And I think we are now reaching into the 2,000, 3,000 comment level on that post. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> there's just, there's a lot of, there was a lot of, a lot of discussion. But the, I mostly participated in the discussions that were going on, like, throughout Facebook and stuff. and. Yeah, there were a lot of people who were like, so I thought my friends were really cool. And then I put up that article and they lost their minds. So I had to unfriend people. I'm like, I'm sorry. But now you know. (laughs) (laughs) And it garnered a lot of attention. Like George R.R. Martin commented and Neil Gaiman commented and um, the the cis white men that are going to be boycotted forever and (laughs) left in the poorhouse because a subset of people have decided not to read them for a little bit. Yes, it's it's so sad for them. It's awful. So sad. Yeah, and Neil Gaiman actually was very supportive when when people because the reason why Neil Gaiman was even involved because I don't even mention Neil Gaiman, but at the top of the article, there's a picture of me holding a book, like giving you the sort of like no 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 you don't have to read for a year. The book I'm holding is American Gods, and of course, of course, like all the Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer stands came out of the they were there. How dare you! Right. How dare you? And um, because what was funny is we used American Gods because I I couldn't find the copy of uh, John DeFranzen's corrections that was we thought might be in the house. And so we couldn't find that. And that was my first choice. Um, and I think actually probably more people would have like been in agreement if I had like put a big X through John DeFranzen's right. book. But it's, you know, beloved old Neil Gaiman. But like that was kind of the point I was making is that, you know, Neil Gaiman doesn't need anybody's help. Neil Gaiman's going to sell so many books. With Neil Gaiman, 
could write poo, 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 poo on a piece of paper and someone would snatch it up, photocopy it, put it in a PDF on the internet and people would pay $12 for it. Neil Gaiman's going to be fine. Like, if you haven't read American Gods by now, you can wait another year to read American Gods. Right. If you read American Gods already, you can maybe not read it again for another year and read some other stuff instead. Like, it's it's going to be okay. And that was, that was kind of my point. But Neil was very nice. Like, what's because people alerted it to him. I'm sure that, like, 12,000 people were like, Neil, Neil Gaiman, do you <laughs> see what this person is doing? They're trying to boycott your book. And he got on tour and he was like, everybody, you need to calm down. I think this is actually a fabulous idea. I don't mind if she uses my book. All of you can just settle. And then people call him a traitor and a race traitor and like all this stuff. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he has always been very chill about it. And so... I'm I'm glad. I appreciate the fact that that Neil gets like what it was about. It wasn't an attack on him because it wasn't. I was just like, well, America gods. No, and he's. I mean, I'm 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 a fan girl. Like I really really like Neil Gaiman a lot. I mm-hmm. I'm like I want to be your best friend, and you know, but I wouldn't because that'd be super creepy, and I'm not like that. But like, um, <laughs> I but I did. You know, I I gave him a chance. I or not. I gave him a chance. I had the chance. Um, he when he wrote Ocean at the end of the lane, he did a book tour, and um, it was just after he partnered with BlackBerry to do something like I think it was called a calendar of tales where he wrote a story about Uh, each month of the year. And it was, um, it was just after I had lost a good friend to cancer and the December story, um, was kind of about a sick person, um, and their renewal. And, I just sobbed. And so um, at the book signing, I had the chance, like, and he read, I I had the chance to write this little short letter to him and give it to him about um, how that really helped me heal a little bit from, you know, this, um, this, this horrible thing that had happened to someone I loved very much. And, um, and he got a little teary. And I mean, I I mean, I just, I think that he's a really cool a cool person. And I think that he's um, maybe not a strong advocate for marginalized groups, but I do think that he is an advocate. And I think that he sees value in doing things to help you change your perspective. Cause I think that's something that he does a lot. Like um, when he wrote American gods, he like drove all over the United States in order to, to like get in a mindset to do this. Like, I think it's something that he's very intimately familiar with. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Neil is one of those authors who goes out of his way to include in, in, include perspectives that maybe not everybody, you know, at the time is including. I actually, um, I just started uh, on my second uh, class of writing the other um, last night. And one of the things that I talk about with that first class is about representation and why representation is important. And, and one of the aspects of that talk is um, how perceptions of representation change over time. And I always use um, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Um, and there's a particular book in Sandman called A Game of View. The story is called A Game of View. And in that story, there's a trans woman named Wanda. And there are tons of discussions about Wanda across the internet. Uh, there have always been tons of discussions about Wanda and like her storyline and what happens to her and you know how she's drawn and how she's written. And what I find the most interesting uh, about the 
the entire discussion is, you know, a lot of people now they say, oh, well, you know, Wanda is a terrible trans character, and this is not the kind of trans characters that we that we should be valorizing and saying this is great. And meanwhile, there are some trans people who, when they first read this story back in, I guess it was late '80s or early '90s that this came out, um, they were saying, but we love Wanda, and one of the reasons why they love Wanda is because, you know, Wanda was one of the first, you know, trans people that they saw, like, given a prominent spot in, in um, a piece of media, like, she's a major character in that story. Um, and also, there are some trans people who defend Wanda to the death because she was a direct result of conversations that they had with Neil Gaiman about their lives. And this is, I, in particular, my friend Ross Cavaney and my friend Cheryl Morgan um, were two of the women who knew Neil back in the 80s and they had these conversations with him and they talked to them about, you know, just a lot of the stuff that they went through and all of that stuff went into what, you know, all the stuff around Wanda in A Game of You. And, you know, it didn't necessarily come out exactly right. It definitely has, you know, particularly now, but also there were some people like when it came out who just didn't, who felt very marginalized by that representation, but there were some people who felt really um, empowered by that representation. And in these discussions, you know, Neil himself has said, I would not write a game of you the same way today as I wrote it back then, because, you know, the way that, um, you know, we're looking for representation of trans people, the, our expectations of it, our needs are different now than they were back then. Um, but at, you know, even at, at all of that, all the discussions about that, I would rather have had someone care enough about the people, you know, that they talk to in their lives that are different from them to try to put them in fiction in, you know, in a way that, that humanizes them than not. Yeah, that's super powerful. That's something, I mean, talking about doing things differently. I mean, this podcast the things that I've learned in just a little over a year of doing it, I probably wouldn't have the same show that I have now if I had known then what I know now, you know? Yeah. Like um, making it about all sorts of marginalized people. Um, I was really well-intentioned when I do, when I did that, but you know, it's like there are plenty of people of color who have podcasts that I could have boosted instead of, you know, interviewing, you know, people of color not to say that I shouldn't but like I could have made my focus much more narrow and um left things for other people but on the other hand my show is different than all of those other shows so you know I don't know but um there's something to be said for the change of society and for you know shifting viewpoints and learning more and growing as a person and um how how you look at what you've accomplished and what you've done yeah and I think that, you know, especially with it being and not necessarily easy, as I've discovered, it's not easy, but um, the fact that having a podcast, being able to put your voice out there, having a blog, um, you know, having a, a vlog, all of that is more accessible now to everyone um, or not to everyone, but like to more people 
And it used to be that, like, if you if we wanted to to have this kind of show, we'd have to get on public access cable, right, in the basement, <laughs> to talk about these things, right? Like, we'll be in a basement yeah. or some like. I think that's required. Know, a basement is required. <laughs> some D studio somewhere in like the local PBS station. So, but now that you know we can do this, and and you don't necessarily need to have like the most high end audio equipment. You don't necessarily need to have you know a you know twelve thousand dollar computer in order to make that happen. And so I think that. It, it's important to both, you know, do what you can to like boost people who are different from you, as well as um, making the things that you create, including them too. It's like, it's, it's both sides of the coin. And I, that's what I try to do with like all the time I spend on the internet yelling at people. <laughs> um, so I spend a lot of time on the internet yelling at people, but I, I do it because I want to make, I, I, I want to boost the signal. I want to, you know, make conversation that's not just about um, the marginalization of the people who are like me. You know, I'm a black woman. Um, I'm from the Midwest. We have a special kind of, you know, I don't know what you would call it, business um, <laughs> when you're from the Midwest. But, you know, I lived in New York City for uh, many years, almost all my adult life. And I could spend my entire life just talking about the issues of black women in generation X um, and, and the stuff that we have to go through because there's a lot of stuff that we've had to deal with. I'm very lucky in my life uh, in that I have lived a pretty economically privileged life, but even beyond that, like even if I hadn't had that, I also come from a very large and loving family. And so I know like one of the things that I know about my life is that whatever happens to me, if like, I am flat broke and I am kicked out of my house and I have nothing but my suitcase and the cat hair on it. <laughs> I will have a place to go and live and be safe. Um, and so I try to then live my life so that, you know, I can use that, that comfort that I have so that I can say, okay, like I'm not going to, you know, just spend my life like trying to, you know, do X thing. I'm going to spend my life trying to boost this signal and make art that, you know, changes people's minds or makes the culture better. Um, and I'm also going to make sure that I bring all the other, you know, black women along with me and then all the other women of color that I can find along with me and all the other people of color, all the other marginalized folks, people who are, you know, trans or people who are gay and lesbian people who are non-binary, like all that stuff. I, I try to like, you know, either be a signal booster for, or be the voice of all of those things. Um, because it's, I just feel like it's so important, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like mine should be the only voice and mine is definitely not the only voice and woo for that. Cause sometimes mm. I'm like, I need a break tapping out. I'm going to go somewhere six months and not think about anything. And I, I could do that because there are so many other really amazing people out there who are doing stuff. Like I, I look at the people who are involved in Black Lives Matter and I'm like, oh my God, everything they're doing is so important. And there are times I'm like, There's, what they're doing is so much more important than what I'm doing. Maybe I should just go sit down somewhere. But then I also realize that like no one person can change an entire culture. No one person can fix all the things that are wrong. Everybody has to like do a part mm. so that like all of it gets done. So like my 
sphere is, you know, fandom and media culture. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do what I can over here. And then the people who are writing Black Lives Matter are like working in this sphere. And then there's the NAACP and they're working in that sphere. And then there's like the, the dreamers and they're working in another sphere. And all I can do is be like, by the way, everybody needs to pay attention to that, this, that, and the other thing. Everybody pay attention to all the things so that all of us together can like work to make the world a better place. That's what I want. Me too. Me too. So I think the last thing I want to, there's so much I could talk to talk with you about, but um, I know that you're teaching some classes, right? Mm -hmm. So will you talk about those a little bit? Sure. Um, At the moment I am teaching two classes. The first one, uh, which just started this week is um, writing the other online. And I team teach that with Nisi Shaw who is an amazing writer. And she is uh, one of the co-authors of the book, Writing the Other, with Cynthia Ward. And Nisi and Cynthia developed a, um, a, a workshop, like a four-hour workshop on Writing the Other based on um, some experiences they had in writing workshops and hearing other students saying things like, oh, well, you know, you can never write a person who isn't like you, you get it wrong and then you'll, you'll offend everybody and it's just not worth trying. And they were like, this is ridiculous. So they developed a workshop to, to basically ease people into understanding that they can write the other. And so a couple of years ago, I had an idea. I was like, I think that we should do a writing the other workshop and retreat because I love writing retreats. They're my favorite thing. You go off to somewhere really beautiful and you like write and you're surrounded by other people who are writing and you get a lot of writing done and you're like, oh, if only my real life could be like this. And then it was like, back to real life. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. But um, so I said, let's do a writing the other workshop and retreat where we have people come in who like want to learn how to write the other. And, you know, we'll have like Cynthia and Nisi do their original class. And then we'll have a couple of other teachers like do some deep dives into things. And that worked out really well. And so I said, let's, let's try to do this again. But I said, let's try to do it online. So um, Mary Robinette Kowal, who was one of the people who helped me put together the retreat, um, she taught me how to do online classes the way that she does them. Uh, so we taught a class called Diversity and Narrative. We taught two of those classes. And then I got together with Nisi, and then we developed um, Right and the Other Online. So they're six-week classes. And this is the second, the one that we're in the middle of, this is the second one we're doing. I'm also teaching uh, for the Brainery Workshop. A short story class and that's more of a it's it's short stories of the speculative nature so science fiction and fantasy horror type of genre and that one this is my first time teaching that but essentially with the short story it's more general it's like you know let's uh talk about beginnings and endings and narrative forms and characterization and world building and stuff along those lines and we're using jeff vandermeer's wonder book as um sort of a template for how we move through each of these topics oh, that's such a good book yeah it's Wonder Book is amazing. Like, if you want to be a writer, go out and buy the Wonder Book right now because it's just, you, even if you are not a beginning writer, there, there are parts of Wonder Book when I was reading, I was like, that is the most amazing insight. And it's not something that I had ever, you know, grokked before. And I've been writing for, you know, who knows how many years. So I feel like there's always something that you can get out of the wonder book no matter what level of writer you are because it's all these different writers talking about different aspects of story and um 
just a lot of really good insights. So we're we're using Wonderbook, and it's it's a twelve week class this semester. Next semester, I think it's going to be a fourteen week class. But essentially, it's you know workshopping stories with your peers, um, with the instructors, and I'm one of the instructors. Uh, master classes with very fancy writers such as Ken Liu and Amala Maltar, um, and just like digging really deep into what makes you know what makes stories great but also like what it means to be a writer who's like i want to make this like a professional go at being a writer what are magazines looking for how do you take a story idea that's just good and make it great that's that's what we are trying to cover uh in in 12 weeks in this class wow that's that's a lot do you cover how to name characters because that's where i always i am so bad at naming things I well, we might we might cover it because one of the things I I am going to do with each of the classes is um, there's going to be like a sort of mini lecture. We're going to have discussions about our readings because every week they have to read a published story and we're go deep into the published story. But then I'm going to let my students sort of guide, like ask those questions to say, how do I name characters? I mean, my character names usually sort of just come to me. Sometimes they come out of I read a lot of mythology, and so I've stolen a lot of names from mythology, like obscure names. I've just taken them because <laughs> nobody's using that name right now. Uh, that person has been dead for quite a long time, <laughs> so so I steal those. And, and I I've never been big on like random name generators because I always feel like you know names are so important right. to a character. Um, the one thing that I used to do a lot when I was like, ah, oh, I need a, I need a name that means this is I would go to those baby naming sites and I would look up the definitions of names. So I'd be like, I need a name that means strength. And then I would look at all the different names that mean strength. And then I would sort of modify them. So it's not quite, it's like George. I don't know if George Lowe was, but I would see like George means strength. So I'd be like, I will call him Gorg. I like Gorg it. Hamilton. <laughs> So yes, that's that's my secret naming thing. Naming tent, naming yeah. tents, naming hence by Tempest. <laughs> well, we are at about an hour. I'm. I don't want to stop talking, but it's time. Um, how can people find you online? I have a website, uh, which is ktempestbradford.com. and on my website you can find links to all of my different social media everything's like even my Flickr account which I don't really update oh my gosh. <laughs> but I love uh but you can see my Instagram which I post a lot on and uh on Twitter I'm Tiny Tempest on Facebook it's just K Tempest Bradford and I am I I don't update my blog enough because of reasons because I'm like I have so many things other things to write there's so many things to write but um it, my blog is definitely where you will find things like uh, if I post a new video, if I, you know, decide to, or if I have a new story published, or if I um, have modified a Barbie doll to look like Jim, you know, whatever, <laughs> I'll put that on my blog. Um, also coming up on my blog, like on October 1st, I am doing a big relaunch of a lot of the projects that I had been doing earlier in the year that got a little bit pushed to the side during the summer because um, I've been moving around a lot. But it was as a result of the article that I wrote uh, that 
led to the Tempest Challenge. I actually started a, a video web series called the Tempest Challenge, where every week I would say, here's a book that you should read that fits into the challenge. And so that's been on hiatus for the summer. It's coming back. Um, October the 1st um, is going to be more Tempest Challenge videos. I'm also starting uh, a new web series. It's going to be an occasional one. So like maybe every two weeks um, called You Done Fucked Up. <laughs> Probably there would be a bleep in there somewhere. That still makes um, me laugh. I yeah, but, <laughs> and, and basically it's just going to be me be ranting about like somebody who, who done fucked up and telling them how. And I am also going to start uh, a new, I'm not entirely sure if it's going to be a uh, only video or if it's going to be a podcast and video, but it's called the the right gear because as i said i'm a technology journalist and people are always like what laptop should i buy what phone do i need if i'm a writer should i get a bluetooth keyboard you know all these mm -hmm. questions so i'm just going to go through like all the different technology that that we writers use and and review it and talk about why i think it's great and not only like high technology electronics like computers and stuff but also pens like what's the best <laughs> pen we'll, we'll have a whole episode on the pens best and pen. paper are my like that's what i hoard yeah so I'm, I'm doing that so all of that like i'm making a big announcement on october the first um and, and on my blog com, i will list all the different ways that, that you can see all this stuff and all the different ways in which you might maybe donate to support me creating all of this crazy business so many goings on tempest i try oh my gosh i wish i had your energy i eat a lot of power bars <laughs> <laughs> uh you can find the show on twitter at less than or equal if you have feedback suggestions for guests or would like to be a guest please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form if you have a few minutes it would be wonderful if you'd leave a review or a star rating on itunes but really the number one way to get more people listening to the show is if you make a personal recommendation to them so tweet at them email them tag them on facebook there is a facebook page that's a little neglected um, but it does exist uh thanks so much for listening until next time on an internet near you i am aline sims for less than or equal